and a very warm welcome to this fourth installment of the Science in Life webinar series on rare diseases. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, and once again it is my pleasure to be the moderator for today's discussion. In this nine-part series that will run through the remainder of 2021, we are unpacking many different aspects of this important topic of rare diseases. If you missed our previous webinars in this series, you can find them archived at webinar.sciencemag.org. This webinar, as well as recordings of future events, will also be posted there. Our first webinar in the series was a broad overview of this topic, while the second focused on the challenges of diagnosing rare diseases and the third on detecting rare diseases. In today's event, we are looking at the topic of neonatal and prenatal testing for rare diseases. Finally, thank you to Foundation Ipsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. Now, I'm so pleased to welcome today's panel of experts and give them the opportunity to introduce themselves to you. So a very warm welcome to all of you. Thank you for making the time to join us today. And Monica, I'm going to ask you to get the ball rolling. Thank you, Sean. So my name is Monica Wojcik. I'm a medical geneticist at Boston Children's Hospital, and I'm also a neonatologist here where I work taking care of neonates and infants in the intensive care unit. Um, in addition to my clinical role, I also spend a lot of time doing research related to diagnosis and the pre and postnatal periods, and also research related to gen genomic medicine or how we use these diagnoses to really empower and inform the best care for our babies and their families, not only in the NICU, but in the neonatal infant period and beyond. So thank you for having me. Wonderful. Thank you, Monica. Uh, next, I'm going to turn to Roberto. Hello, my name is Roberto Giuliani. I am a medical geneticist based in Porto Alegre, in the south of Brazil, where I work in the university hospital and have been involved in the last 35 years with newborn screening, trying to bring this kind of uh, approach to Brazil and, and Latin America, and working also in translational research to innovate on this area in our, in our region. As a medical geneticist, I'm also being involved in prenatal diagnosis and prenatal screening. So it will be a pleasure to discuss these points with you the next hour. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Roberto. Uh, and next up is Jim, who's joining us from the UK. Hi, it's uh, Jim Bonham here, and I'm president of the International Society for Neonatal Screening. Uh, we have around 500 members in that society, drawn from a little more than 40 countries right around the world. <clears throat> in my day job, I work as uh, laboratory lead for newborn screening in the UK, and one of the exciting ventures that we're about to embark upon is screening for a new condition in the UK, at least evaluating that severe combined immune deficiency. That's one of the disorders that causes immune problems in young children that we can avoid if we identify it early. So that gives a kind of flavor of the exciting things that newborn screening can sometimes deliver. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jim. And uh, finally, we're going to uh, ask Melissa to introduce herself. Thanks, Sean. Hi, I'm Melissa Wasserstein. I'm a medical geneticist, uh, and I work at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. Um, I am specifically a biochemical geneticist, which means that I take care of patients with inborn errors of metabolism, most of whom were diagnosed through newborn screening, so have recognized that full benefit of early detection. Um, and for my research, I, I work with a pilot newborn screening research study called Screen Plus, where we're um, screening consented babies for an additional 14 disorders, um, while we're also doing an evaluation of the associated ethical issues that accompany newborn screening for complex disorders. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Melissa. Uh, so, Jim, I think I'm going to have you start us off. And before we get to the importance of neonatal or newborn screening, I wonder if you could just walk us through what is neonatal newborn screening and how is it done? Yes, thanks, Sean. Um, newborn screening uh, gives us the opportunity to identify children before they become ill, uh, and that's absolutely pivotal. So when these children are born, they look very often perfectly normal, they behave entirely normally, and unknown to anyone, uh, they have a serious and sometimes life-threatening condition. And what newborn screening enables us to do is to detect that before they become ill and intervene and treat them. 
And that treatment is truly life-changing uh, for those children. Um, when, in terms of the organization of newborn screening, it was first described really back in the 1960s. So we've been doing newborn screening now in countries like the US <clears throat> and in many countries in Europe uh, for more than 50 years. And one of the early pioneers was a chap called Dr. Robert Guthrie. And Robert Guthrie was a microbiologist and he gave us not only a test that could be newborn, used in newborn screening, but perhaps even more importantly, a means of obtaining a sample and transporting that sample simply. And the condition he was interested in as a rare disorder occurs in around about one in 10,000 children called phenylketonuria, often abbreviated to PKU. And what Bob Guthrie uh, discovered was that you could identify those children affected by a simple microbiological test. That test since been replaced, um, but what he gifted us was something even more enduring. And that was he gifted us, as I say, a means of collecting that sample. And what uh, Bob Guthrie suggested was that you could take a tiny drop of blood, drop it onto a filter paper, and allow that to dry, and then transport that sample simply and easily to a regional testing center. And that's basically the heart of the newborn screening that we still do today. Of course, now we test for many more conditions and we use more sophisticated technology. But the basics of that was set by Bob Guthrie in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. So so essentially the, the test hasn't changed. It's still a, a pinprick um, with a, a young newborn and a paper card that the, the blood is put on? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right, Sean. It's, it's still a pinprick of blood, um, just a effectively one drop of blood, usually a few drops of blood uh, applied across a filter paper with the patient's identification details attached to that. That can be air dried and then popped into an envelope and sent by FedEx or by any other mail system to a regional testing center. Um, of course, the quality of the sample is important. It's important to get it there to the laboratory quickly, but the samples are pretty stable and that really forms the bedrock of newborn screening right around the world. Mm -hmm. A couple of you mentioned uh, some new uh, advances in newborn screening, some new programs that you're involved in. So, uh, Melissa, maybe I can come to you and ask you, what, what are some of the recent advances in newborn screening and, you know, what, what are you seeing for the future? That's a great question, Sean. So, you know, as Jim mentioned, we started out in the 1960s screening for one disorder, and that was PKU. Uh, and the reason why we did that was this acknowledgement that PKU, you can pick it up on that tiny little bit of blood. You can intervene if the child has a positive screen. So you can really make a tremendous difference in a child who otherwise would have had significant intellectual and developmental disability. And you can do it in a cost-effective manner. So since then, that tiny little bit, two to three millimeter punch of blood on a filter paper, we can now screen for over 50 disorders on every baby using that same tiny little bit of blood. So that's where the major technological advances have been in terms of the ability to use different machinery, different technologies, and get even more information um, to try to make early diagnoses. In addition to, to doing those tests, we can also do different types of testing on that dry blood spot, including DNA-based testing and genomic-based testing. So the, the, the changes and the improvements have been fast and really exciting to see. Mm -hmm. So Roberto, let me let me come to you. Uh, so th there's a couple of questions that that I was interested in in having you answer. The one is in my background reading uh, around rare diseases and neonatal testing, um, I was surprised to read that it's essentially different in almost every country how the testing is done, the number of diseases tested for. Um, is that something you could speak to? And also talk to um, testing in remote locations where it might be difficult to get. Uh, the samples to a hospital or a, a testing facility quickly? You are right. The panels uh, that are <clears throat> in place in each country, they are quite different, usually quite different. Even in, you take the U.S., in some, uh, from state to state, there is there are some differences in Germany, the same. So it's, uh, it depends very much on the how the health system deals with the with this program, the priorities, the what they decide that is should be included. As Melissa just said, the number of conditions that we could include in this 
the newborn screening is uh, something that uh, almost unlimited. But uh, of course, you have a, 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 some preconditions to to, this, to, the, to define which disease to include, and this varies from country to country. So there are countries that with very limited panels, and other countries with more expanded panels. And uh, uh, there is a, a so a, a lot of heterogeneity uh, among these programs. And uh, and I think the the different experience could be observed and could be combined. And I'm sure that the International Society of Newborn Screening is trying to, to observe what is being performed around the world in order to help the, to have some more uniform uniform panels or at least some minimal set of conditions that should be should be included in a, in a program. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Roberto, is is testing global? Is every child in the world tested, or are there still parts of the world where, where no testing is done? Unfortunately, there are still some parts of the world where no test is, is done. I, I would say that in, in the developed countries, it is in place, and also I would say most of the developing countries, there are some kind of screening. But uh, there are there are some areas that where newborn screen is not uh, is not uh, performed, or at least it's not a health poli- uh, a public health policy. Mm-hmm. So there are still lots to be done to to have uh, newborn screening as a, a global initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, Monica, let me let me come to you with this next question. I want to get onto the importance of of testing. So you know, obviously we we've touched on the fact that it can identify certain diseases early that can allow, I guess, early treatment. But maybe you could expand on that um, and also talk about how many disorders are currently screened for. Uh, you know, I know it's different in, in different countries, as we just talked about. But if it, generally, how many disorders are we looking at currently? Yes, thank you all. It's an important question. I think just to give you an insight into what happens, you know, in the neonatal intensive care unit, for example, I think it's important to highlight the difference between the screening tests that was nicely described by the others in terms of trying to identify babies that are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic for conditions. You know, Jim had brought up severe combined immune deficiency and Melissa had brought up PKU or both of them had talked about PKU. And those are conditions where you might have a baby that's well, but at risk for these severe complications. And with insight into the condition they have, you can then uh, you know, in many cases, have life-saving treatments. Um, in the in the NICU, in contrast, you know, many of the most of the babies just because they're in the ICU are, are already sick, and so we've already moved in that case often beyond the screening panel into the realm of of neonatal diagnosis, where we're then trying to use some of the techniques that Melissa had mentioned, like DNA-based sequencing tests, to try to figure out what the baby has once they're already sick, and so. And again, in contrast to the newborn screening panel, which in in, in most cases has, depending on the state, you know, uh, dozens of conditions on it that are supposed to be early onset, treatable, and and sometimes curable. When we have a baby who's already sick and we're trying to identify the diagnosis, it may be treatable or it may not. And so the way we approach the testing and how we use it might differ than the screening tests that that had been talked about before. Excellent. And just so that I understand, we're currently not doing genomic screening on newborns uh, as a standard screen, right? This is this is a different type of right. test. Correct. And um, so the, the traditional newborn screen is not a genomic screen, meaning it's not generally designed to sequence all the DNA and look for disease-causing changes that produce the conditions in question, although there have been some important studies looking into what that would look like. Uh, but right now, there's, there's biochemical tests and other kinds of functional tests. Um, and like I said, it reflects a little bit of the different purpose between a screening and a diagnostic test. Let me come back to to Jim and then uh, Roberto. Uh, Jim, why not screen for more disorders? You know, I'm, we we know my understanding is about seven thousand rare diseases. Um, there's about uh, I think 140, 150 that are sort of common in rare diseases. But why why not screen for all of them? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, and and Monica's partly answered that because at the minute in newborn screening we depend 
largely upon biochemical tests. And so first of all, we've got to have a test and, and not all of the 7,000 rare disorders uh, have a good biochemical marker that we could uh, use for screening. Mm. But, but there's a more philosophical reason as well. Um, and, and that is that uh, someone once said that uh, all screening does harm, uh, some screening does more good than harm, and some of that at reasonable cost. And so there is always a judgment to be made because we're reaching out to families who believe their children to be well. And of course, the reason that most uh, parents uh, look for screening for their children is not necessarily to find out if there's something wrong, but to be reassured that their child, who they believe to be well, is in fact well. So any screening result comes as a shock. Um, so it's really important to balance the potential benefits of identifying children early from the harm that we might do if we over-diagnose or over-treat children. So we've got to have a test that is highly targeted, that doesn't upset families. We've got to be able to present families with good information to make decisions on. And then we've got to be able to offer this test, not just as an isolated test, but as part of a whole programme of care. So that if the shock comes and the family get a phone call to say that they've got a positive result for their child, then they're immediately plugged into a responsive and well-organised uh, treatment system. And of course, that's not always available. So when health policymakers begin to decide which conditions they will screen for, they use a, a set of criteria. And thankfully, there is a set of criteria that that has been around for some time, in fact, more or less from the beginning of newborn screening from 1968, uh, called the Wilson and Yugner criteria. And they're used to help assess whether or not it's wise in healthcare to screen for a particular condition. And they have things in it like, is this an important condition? Is it treatable? Is it, while being rare, still common enough to justify a whole population screening program? Is it going to be a, a, a proportionate health uh, intervention if, if you want? Um, and so that, fortunately, most people use that. Of course, the reason that we all end up with different answers is that different people choose. So different people make those assessments about the balance of risk and benefit. And sometimes they are predominantly public health people that is people that take an overall view of the good for the population. And sometimes they're influenced by individual clinicians who may lobby for a particular disease that they've seen have devastating consequences for individual children. And that difference of approach will often come to differences in, in decision. Some of those decision-making bodies ask for published evidence. And in, as we know, in rare disease, getting good published evidence is difficult. And so if you demand evidence-based published literature um, before you intervene, before you start the screening program, then you will always um, be a little bit later than those who are willing to base it on the recommendations of, of clinicians and others. And then lastly, some administrations, particularly those that operate socialized medicine, uh, look for detailed explanations of the cost effectiveness of screening. So is this something that we should spend money on when perhaps we could be spending money on something else? And you can imagine in some low and middle income countries, there are really difficult decisions about where it's wise to send, spend your money in order to get the best outcome for the population uh, that you're responsible for. Mm -hmm. So taking all that together, then you get these differences in, in choice, mm -hmm. ranging from perhaps in some places screening for 50 conditions to in other places screening for one or two, or maybe even none at all. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, Roberto, I wanted to come to you to see if you had any thoughts on that as well. Yeah, you mentioned that there are around 7,000 genetic diseases. Why not screen for all, all these diseases? Well, first of all, Jim just pointed out that we, the condition should be uh, have a treatment, should be treated. Treatable. So this limits the number much more, less than this 7,000, just a fraction of them. And also the, the situations that the, the, the early, early diagnosis and early treatment should make a difference on the patient's life. So this also decreases the number of target conditions. And um, 
there are other points that you should have, uh, as Jim just mentioned, a program that uh, covers not only the diagnosis, this is the easiest part of the, the newborn screening, but also the, the, the therapy and the follow-up and have this in place in providing this effectively to, to, to people. So this is a, there are a lot of challenges and limit a lot the number of diseases you really uh, include on the on the program. So the the so the the final number is much lower is around uh, so 50, 60 the most expanded program. But in fact, technically you would be able to do much more, but you have taken account of these these conditions to in order to select the disease to, to include in a program. Mm -hmm. may, may I add something? Sure, absolutely. So I think that um, what's really interesting, we're at this point in history of newborn screening where we've, as Jim mentioned, we've always been using these Wilson and Younger criteria to guide us about what is appropriate. And the focus has always been on screening for disorders that benefit the baby. Mm -hmm. There has to be something for that child that's going to change the outcome of their health that we can treat, that we can do things for. But now that we're expanding newborn screening to all of these other kinds of disorders, we can screen for many of these 7,000 rare disorders. We probably have the technology to do so. So the big question is, is it time for us to rethink those criteria and that definition of benefit? Should newborn screening still just be for the benefit of that baby? Should we make sure that there is always a treatment? Or can we also think outside the box a little bit? Is there a benefit to the family? Even if maybe we don't have a treatment for that baby, but if that family now knows that, God forbid, there's a terrible disorder running in their family, maybe they could use that information to help for genetic counseling for, for the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. Is there a benefit to knowing that there's a disorder that might not present to adolescents or adulthood? Is there some benefit to that individual? So mm -hmm. I think it's time for us to start rethinking how we're looking at it because we're at that stage in life where we probably can test for all these things. Should we do it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank you uh, for- I'm just gonna add, oh, yeah. Please, sorry, sorry, I was Monica, please add, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. There's, there's two really, I think, main facets that we've been saying. I think one is just, you know, can we do it? Can we look for all these 7,000 disorders? And, and many of these conditions are defined biochemically and also genetically, meaning you might see a biochemical change or you might find it by a DNA change. And I'm sure we can all think of cases where the traditional newborn screen might have missed a biochemical case that was then detected by a DNA-based test or vice versa, you know, where there is a clear biochemical disorder, one of the classic, you know, inborn errors, for example, but we couldn't find the genetic change. And so relying on either DNA or the biochemical tests alone, you could potentially potentially miss cases. And so I think there's still, it's still not clear how to best use those two together all detect all the conditions you think are important. And then once you define that ability, I think the, the issues that Melissa was just touching on are just so critical to consider. And, and she raises some really important questions about, you know, what is important for the family to know. And I think I mentioned before that we use, um, very broad genetic testings like exome and genome sequencing to diagnose infants in the NICU all the time, many of whom may present with something that's relatively localized, like a congenital heart defect. And then we find out they actually have a multi-system disorder that has much more profound implications for things like growth, development, intellectual disability, you know, um, and what and we can try to predict what their adult life might look like. So we we really are giving this information to families already in certain scenarios that they were weren't expecting. And so um, I think thinking about how to do that appropriately and in, in the right way, you know, for these new families is, is really a critical question. Mm -hmm. Great. Now, thank you for bringing that up. I, I, I will say that in the previous webinars, a, a couple of times I've asked the question, is it worth testing if we don't have any kind of treatment? And um, almost unanimously, everybody says, yes, it is, because it does help the families. It does help the, you know, the ability to track potential uh, familial defects. So I, I think that makes complete sense. Um, Jim Roberto, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add to, to this discussion. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's interesting, Sean, it's interesting that you should say that, because I think there are two distinct schools of thought. And, and, and it may well be that, um, that that views change depending upon where you are. But certainly, I think it's probably fair to say that in Europe, 
um, we would take a much more guarded view about treating for conditions that would be considered to not be treatable. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, and, and I think not least um, that you take away um, sometimes what is described as the golden years of having uh, what to all intents and purposes is, is a, a normal child and, and allowing that bonding to happen with the family. And some families uh, who are given um, a treatment, uh, a diagnosis of an untreatable condition, say that they welcome that early because it cuts down the terrible journey that they go through getting that information and allows them to plan. And that's a view that's to be respected. And, and, and others say, well, actually, no, this has robbed us of, of an enjoyable childhood with this child who then subsequently begins to perhaps regress. And, and they feel that they've permanently lost those years and that's been taken away from them and why and who has the right to do that. Um, and, and of course, it, the, the other difficulty with spreading the net wider in screening, and particularly into conditions where the child does not necessarily become ill until adolescence, is that you remove the right not to know. Uh, these babies that are being tested are being tested by definition without their consent or knowledge. And, and you're giving them information that's directly relevant to their lives as they grow up. Um, and they've got no choice about that. They, they simply inherit that, if you like, because of a choice for their parents. Mm -hmm. so, so I think there are some real debates to be had, and this is be, gonna become perhaps even more topical as we begin to use that tiny drop of blood. Uh, we have the potential to use, as we said, that tiny drop of blood on a filter paper to do perhaps whole genome sequencing. And then we get into these very difficult areas for what is it like to have your life mapped out in front of you without your consent and who has the right to do that. Um, these are tricky issues. Mm -hmm. no, it's, it certainly is a very complex uh, um, problem to resolve. So, But I, I, I thank you all for your input. I think this is a really interesting uh, uh, discussion and, and part of the, the rare diseases issue. Um, I, I did want to come back to something that we, we touched on, which is... Um, uh, Jim, I think you you mentioned the the sort of quote that all testing um, uh, is uh, some is uh, I can't remember the, the term used invasive or yes, all screening does harm. Does harm. Yes, Sorry. Is, yes. So, so some does good as well. Right. So the yeah. the question is 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 testing dangerous and what are the risks? Uh, what are the disadvantages? Um, and I'd also like to compare screening to diagnosis as well. Um, so um, maybe, Jim, I'll, I'll let you start off and then um, we'll come over to Melissa. Yeah. Um, I mean, immediately when you test someone, um, when you take a blood sample, you, you give them a little bit of anxiety. You potentially medicalize them. And, and of course, that, that's not a bad thing if the end product of that is some useful information which can prevent or treat uh, disease. Um, it is a bad thing if you medicalize them and it's just a false alarm. And, uh, and that does happen and it happens with screening. Um, with what we talk about within the screening world is what's described as the positive predictive value of the test. And so what that means is you get a positive result on your patient, you get a a screening test which proves positive, what are the chances from that result that your child really has the condition? And that varies condition by condition. And, and for some conditions, it means if you get a positive screening result, you've never got a 90% chance of having that condition. For others, it can be as low as 5 or 10% or sometimes even less than that. So that means for every child that gets this positive screening result, then nine children get, if you like, a, a false positive uh, screening result. And, and what we know from studies is that from, for some people, that impact comes and goes and then they get on with their lives. And for others, it results in long-lasting parental stress. And you can mark that by things such as increased use of hospitalised, uh, of hospital attendance or... Uh, or, or going along to the primary care physician more regularly. And, and it disturbs uh, normal family life. And we know that that can be 
comparatively serious for some families. So this is not uh, an intervention without cost. And then the other thing that we find when we screen is that we screen for the form of disease which we would expect to see, the classical form that you would come become ill with without screening. But we also widen the goalposts and we, screen, we identify uh, forms of that disease which are much, much milder and possibly would remain, remain asymptomatic right into, child, uh, right into late childhood or even adulthood or perhaps never even come to clinical attention. So we, in that sense, medicalize people, give them a lifelong uh, diagnosis, which for them individually is not necessarily justified. An example of that, for instance, uh, most screening programs will screen for congenital hypothyroidism. And uh, when we began to screen for congenital hypothyroidism, that was a disorder that happened in around about one in 6,000 babies. Um, and it happened with twice as many girls being affected as boys. It now, after screening, we identify about one in 1,500 children, and there are an equal number of girls and boys. And what that's telling us is that whatever we thought we were screening for, it's not the same thing as the clinical condition was. It's changed the goalposts. That doesn't mean it's wrong to do it, and it doesn't mean it doesn't benefit those extra children that have been diagnosed, but it's not exactly the same condition as we were identifying before. Mm -hmm. And the honest answer is for some of those, they may have remained asymptomatic for a very long time. Mm -hmm. For others, they would not. And of course, we treat them all the same to some extent, uh, disregarding that. Mm -hmm. so, so there are things still to learn. We can probably learn our way out of this and refine and target that. But there are still thing, things still to learn, and we st sometimes still get it wrong. And when we get it wrong, we upset families. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, Melissa, I wanted to come to you for your thoughts. Jim raised some excellent points, um, especially about the uncertainty for some of the disorders on our current newborn screening panels. I think you talked about congenital adrenal hyperplasia or congenital hypothyroidism. We're now screening for things like Abe disease and X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy, which are disorders, and again, we're looking for babies with those disorders, but we are often finding children who are at risk for later onset conditions. And sometimes we really can't give a lot of precise information to parents about what to expect, when to expect it, what are the first things to look out for. So it's important to measure what those families are going through. Is it a harm? How, how severe is it? What are they suffering from? How enduring is it? Or is, is it really okay? And maybe there's some benefit to finding that information out earlier because if and when that child does have symptoms, we will know. We will be avoiding that, the diagnostic odyssey. I think that Jim, you had also alluded to. So it might still be a benefit to diagnosing somebody with crop A disease even when they're 16 so that they're not diagnosed when they're 21. Mm -hmm. So we'll still get those additional years of benefit. So there's a, there's a lot to be studied. I think we really need a lot of, of real data about the potential benefits and the potential harms of newborn screening. There's a lot of anecdotal stuff, a lot of opinions about it, um, which has been going on for, for decades. But I think it's time to actually kind of quantitate that. If we can. Mm -hmm. Great. So next, I, um, I'd like to touch on, on prenatal screening. Um, so, Roberto, I'm, I'm going to come to you with these, uh, the start of these questions. Um, so maybe you can explain just very briefly the difference between prenatal and, and neonatal screening um, and also about what types of prenatal screening are currently available. Okay, yes, prenatal screening is something newer than newborn screening, is a test that you usually perform in the uh, pregnant women, in the blood of the pregnant women. To, and now it's mainly in place to detect some uh, chromosomal abnormalities. So the diseases that um, do not have a therapy, but if they, they are detected early in the pregnancy, in the the, the family can discuss uh, in countries where this is, is allowed, can discuss about the pregnancy interruption. So this is the main goal of prenatal screening uh, is to reassure the, the 
with pregnant women, the, the family, about the the health of the the baby that is in, in, the, in the pregnancy. But uh, this is something that is being performed in the in my, um, in in mother's blood, and this uh, it is we can predict that it will be expandable to other to other conditions in the in the future and then there are already some some expansions of this uh, panel of uh, disease that can can be detected so something that is in place if if it is per, uh, is performed for conditions that are treatable would allow to know before birth about the the treatment of the of the condition mm -hmm. uh, one thing that is is uh, also consider as is when you screen uh, the the couple before the 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 the, the women gets pregnant so that you then you can you this is a you can say preconceptional screening and this is in place for some communities mainly where there is some uh, higher prevalence of some genetic disease then you screen to check the the a couple they are if they are carriers of some genetic condition so they can have a genetic counseling before uh, the the conception of a baby so this is something also in place in some in some areas or some communities mm -hmm. right uh, monica i wanted to get your thoughts yeah. um if you could jump sure. in yeah, I mean, I think Roberto touched some really important points and our diagnoses, you know, in the prenatal period really range from even preconception, as he mentioned, where you can see our, our as the couple of carrier for something and that they're at risk of passing along to a baby. Um, and then prenatally, in addition to our traditional methods of screening uh, the blood of the pregnant person for certain uh, biochemical things that could suggest a diagnosis or ultrasound findings, we can now do a, a test on the the blood of the pregnant person to see is there evidence from the fetal DNA that they have a, a chromosomal condition like Down syndrome. Uh, but you still then, you know, if you really want to confirm the diagnosis, have to do a test like an amniocentesis or a CVS chorionic fill sampling procedure to get cells from the fetus or the placenta itself to really confirm that that's a true positive test. And you know, I think those uh, historically we've mostly tested for chromosomal conditions. We do, we can apply the same tests we use postnatally, like exome or genome sequencing in the prenatal period as well. Um, one of the challenges we have in the US for that right now is insurance coverage where it is very expensive to do. Um, and I do think it's, um, it is sometimes uh, framed as a, a, a test you might do if you're deciding whether or not to continue a pregnancy. But I would say that even for couples with an ongoing pregnancy that are committed to continuing no matter the diagnosis, you know, from my work in the NICU and the delivery room and the ICU taking care of babies who are born with very serious conditions, any insight that you have into that condition as early as possible provides not only medical benefit to the team, you know, deciding how to appropriately stabilize the baby in the delivery room, how to take care of them in the NICU, you know, what are they at risk for, but also just psychosocial benefit to the family as they're making some really difficult decisions particularly if the baby's doing worse than expected. And, and it's kind of amazing how much, how many critical decisions we make with so little insight into what the baby has. So from my standpoint, you know, as a neonatologist and geneticist, seeing couples before they even deliver, you know, I, I feel like many of the couples would share this view that any information about what the baby has is just so important to inform decision-making. So I think it's it's really much more than a debate over whether the pregnancy continues or not. It really is gonna shift, I think, our conversations about care from the NICU potentially or the delivery room to the prenatal period. And in my, I mean, I think that has many benefits. I think it raises a lot of the risk benefit questions that um, the others have brought up too, in terms of conditions that might not be as treatable, might not be curable, and you know how are people going to receive this information? Um, but I think you know it's really a a gray area of when you start to have those discussions, and and I think in my practice, the perinatal period is it really open for any sort of discussion about what the diagnosis is for the baby and how you're going to treat it. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm guessing the 
genetic counseling component is very important in this that once something is detected that it can the, the family can then be counseled on how to deal with the, the the potential disease. Yeah, the counseling is critical. I mean in all of these situations I think the counseling is very important. Um, I would say one of the challenges that we have prenatally um, even more so than in newborns is that the phenotype or the constellation of symptoms can be very unclear. And so when you have a, you know, what we call a molecular diagnosis or the, the change in the gene that might cause something, but you, you're dealing with a fetus instead of a baby, you, it might be more difficult to tell for sure, to be honest, if the fetus is going to have that condition. And we're still learning a lot more about the wide spectrum. I think folks have touched on this before, the wide spectrum of, of disease that we really hadn't recognized until this genomic era as we're figuring out that all these people had things that we might not have, have suspected before. And so I think the, the counseling um, is important because there is a lot of uncertainty. I think people think that with genetic testing, because we use the term precision medicine, that it's all going to be very precise and accurate, and we're going to know exactly what to do with it, when in fact it is, in, in some ways, it can introduce even more uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And just to clarify something quickly for our audience and something that I find fascinating, so you are able to detect DNA from a child and biochemical markers from a child in the blood of the mother, is that correct? Correct. Yeah, it's it's referred to as cell-free DNA testing, where there's fragments of fetal DNA, and it's actually from the placenta, but in the in the maternal uh, bloodstream, and so you can you can identify potential changes in the fetal DNA through you know a sample from the mother's blood, which is fantastic because you know many many pregnant people are are reluctant to undergo something like an amnio or a CVS procedure. Mm-hmm. Right. But it is a screening test. I mean, we always say that it's a screening test, meaning that, you know, it, it, we've had couples that had, that had a high likelihood of something like Down syndrome or turning, Turner syndrome or some other chromosomal um, condition. And it turns out it was a false positive, meaning that the fetus and the baby did not have that condition. And we've also had false negatives where the couple had a normal, you know, cell-free DNA test and then had a baby that had something like trisomy 13 or trisomy 18. And so again, it really does tie back to the counseling where the family has to understand that as a screening test, there could be both false positives and false negatives. Um, and so we, we have a very, we do have a detailed conversation with couples about the risks and benefits of then proceeding to a potential diagnostic test like an amniocentesis um, in the case of a, a, either a positive or a negative screening test. It really just depends on the, the clinical picture, if there are anomalies in the fetus and ultrasound, you know, every couple is different. And so we really try to tailor these conversations very specifically to the families. And to Melissa's point about research, I think really understanding the different beliefs and values of families is, is very important and informative as we decide what to do. I don't think it's going to be a one size fits all approach really ever in this situation. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to come to you now, Melissa, for sort of the to change gears a little bit and, and talk about um, uh, what happens after the testing is done. So uh, something that has come up in the previous webinars that we've done, uh, when we've talked about testing of adults and, and children, not necessarily um, uh, infants, uh, is that it's really important to put this information in a place where it's accessible. Since rare diseases by their nature are rare. There's very few people that have them. You need that information and every little bit of information is critical. So can you talk a little bit about how this data is stored? Are there central databases in in different countries or is there a global database? Um, And uh, Roberto, I'd like to come to you uh, after Melissa as well. Um, So there's a, I guess the question you're asking is what happens to the DNA to the newborn screening result data mm-hmm. and outcome data once it's done. Um, and in the United States, every state has their own newborn screening program. So it differs by state. Some states, like New York, for example, where I'm from, can save those dry blood spots for up to 27 years. They identify. They can be used for quality insurance purposes. They can possibly even be used for some de-identified research purposes if they get approval from all the appropriate ethics committees. But the data from that, that's a, it's always a, it's a good question about where it goes and, and, and who can access it. And generally it's probably the most secure data you could ever imagine. 
magic. People can't just access it or plow through it or look through things up or, or you know, get into anybody's personal information. Um, but if there are samples that are particularly valuable, for example, you know, we're looking for a new disorder, can we use some samples to see if we can detect it? Then that information might be able to like, completely be identified, be shared with other state reward screening programs who are also trying to get that um, study on board or that particular um, screen on board. But the, the database, it would be great if there was a more centralized program where people could share outcome, we could learn from each other, we could learn what is the best outcome, what is the best time to start treatment, what is the best test for this particular disorder. It would be ideal if there were more centralized databases. Unfortunately, right now, it's just a little bit choppy. Mm -hmm. uh, Roberto? Yes, there is, unfortunately, there is no global database on this result. Of course, the, there are several initiatives to put together this, to combine the, the data arising from different countries, from different states, in, but uh, there is no global database. And, and there are some countries or some states that uh, are able to store this, this material, and this has being instrumental for development of new tests and of course as, as melissa said with all the ethical approvals and so this is, is very important the, the information it, itself is is uh of course is protected by by the data pri privacy regulations and is just available to the to the family to the to the patient to the individual mm -hmm. but uh, of course the overall data from newborn screening progress they are very useful to, to understand the what the benefits and to just take decisions about the continuity of some of some problems that are in place for some time and then decide whether to to continue or to further expand that that problem mm -hmm. but it would be great if you have more more uh, global uh, data sets on, on this mm -hmm. Jim, in in the UK and Europe, um, what is the setup there as far as sharing data, especially with researchers? Uh, yeah, it's a really hot topic. The uh, in fact, this year we've got uh, every three years we have a an, an uh, international congress of inborn errors of metabolism. This year it's in uh, upcoming in Sydney in November, and it's one of the topics that's uh, on the agenda for that to look at the use of. Uh, registries of patients, particularly informing uh, outcomes for for newborn screening, and uh, the, the there are some initiatives in in Europe. There's there's one particularly for inherited metabolic disorders called uh, UIMD, and and that seeks to draw together different national databases and and create them into a coherent. Uh, European database, and, and that will be discussed at this ICIEM meeting uh, later this year. But there are some there are some interesting and exciting uh, new developments about using patient registry data, and it is possible without infringing um, uh, without infringing personal identity data, which is of course always the difficulty about uh, sharing data across. Uh, state boundaries or across international boundaries, it's possible with uh, artificial intelligence to interrogate databases where they are without necessarily revealing personal identification features. So let's say you were looking at all patients. We mentioned the condition PKU. Let's say we were looking at um, what was the uh, likelihood of developing a particular uh, clinical feature if you had that particular condition. So if we had separately set up registry databases, um, then it would be possible to send a, a questioning tool by artificial intelligence, provided they were interoperable and properly mapped, to be able to interrogate those databases and to provide that information across a global population without necessarily infringing uh, identification of any named patients. So that's an exciting potential development, particularly, as you mentioned, Sean, for rare diseases, because if rare disease story tells us anything, 
it tells us that each individual country cannot do this on their own. These conditions are just too rare. And they're not only rare, but they're heterogeneous. That is, they're different even with patients that have these conditions. They're different from one another. So we've got to work together on this. And, and as I say, there are some exciting things uh, that are coming along to to inform that. And I think particularly for newborn screening, the outcome from newborn screening is just beginning to be looked at systematically. And it's such an important area for us. Fantastic. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Monica, maybe I can I can come to you with this next question. Are there issues with public trust of newborn testing or is it pretty widely accepted? And, it, and in fact, do parents even know that their newborns are being tested or, is, you know, is, is, do we request permission from each parent or is it just done as a standard procedure in many hospitals? No, that's a, it's a great question. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I, to answer the second, uh, the second question, I mean, it is technically, I think you have the, the option to opt out if you don't want to participate in newborn screening. But I, I would say as a parent myself, I don't know that any parent right after they have a baby, you get the file that tells all the things that's going to happen. You know, I don't know that most people go through it in great detail. Um, as a NICU fellow, I would be occasionally called into a room where a parent was wondering about the newborn screening pamphlet and I would describe it to them and they could, you know, th most of the time they would, they would not opt out, you know, and, and have the default screening. But I would say there's probably many parents that, um, that, that don't thoroughly know about it. Uh, and it's, it's sort of the no news is good news, I guess, scenario where the baby was fine, the test was normal, the pediatrician sort of follows up and everything looks good and they never hear it about it again. And I, I think most, many people are happy with that. Uh, I think to your point about trust, you know, I think there are families that are then maybe a little bit more concerned about potentially finding out information that they don't want to hear. And, and sometimes it's, it's a little bit of misunderstanding. You know, I think we've all said that the newborn screen is ideally finding conditions that are treatable and, and would have interventions to, and something to, you know, they're actionable. And so most families would, would want that, you know, that they, I think they, the fear of, of finding a diagnosis you can't do anything about is, is often just related to, to kind of a misunderstanding of the purpose of newborn screening. Um, but, you know, I think to our, our, the discussion we had just now about what happens with these samples afterwards, you know, and where are they going and who has access and, and is my baby's DNA stored somewhere that it could be hacked or, you know, their privacy could be compromised. I think when you get into the, that, that question and, and the, the research that's done with newborn screening, there have been some, um, some you know, issues with trust and people questioning the, the appropriateness of how these um, samples are handled. But um, I think as others had said, I think it's it's also part of our mission as clinicians and scientists to try to understand these disorders and do it in a responsible way. And so um, hopefully as we find better, good ways to, to treat this data uh, appropriately and with all the privacy um, and security considerations, you know, we can, we can make sure to build public trust there. But it's a good question. Mm -hmm. Anybody else have some any thoughts they wanted to share? No, otherwise we can we can move on. So I, I have a couple more questions. We don't have a lot of time left, um, but I did want to talk about it. It actually touches on something that you just said, Monica, and that is what can parents do to be more proactive about understanding newborn screening? Uh, and M Melissa, maybe I'll, I'll have you talk to this. Um, you know that obviously parents get certain resources when they they're at the hospital, but um, can they do anything themselves to to talk to learn about methods and implications of newborn and and even prenatal screening? Sure, there there's lots of information out there. I think people don't access this as much as we would like them to, but um, most states have their own state-based newborn screening program that describes what your baby will be screened for if you live in Indiana or if you live in Hawaii. Um, and that describes the process for sample storage that Monica was talking about before. It'll describe what's going to happen if the baby has a positive newborn screen. There's also some more national databases, uh, websites that describe newborn screening in general. And um, so the information is there. The people in the hospital will know about it. The nurses will know about it. The people taking the baby's collection will, will know about it. The OBGYN will know about it. The pediatrician will know about it. 
Um, so there's lots of resources to ask about it. It's, I wish people talked about it a little more, so it's not a surprise for that really small number will have a positive screen when we call to say it's positive, and they say, what are you talking about? What newborn screen? I wish people were looking into it a little more, but again, for the majority of people, no news is good news. You don't know what happened because it was normal, you know? Great. Uh, Roberto, I mean, you, you've been doing this for 35 years. Do you have any advice for parents who, who you know, could wanted to learn more? Yeah, well, I, I would point out two I think, important things uh, regarding newborn screening. One is, uh, is the, well, I already mentioned many times on this seminar, was about, is about heterogeneity. So uh, you, the, te the test detects a condition or detects an abnormality, uh, which can sometimes mean a very dramatic disease, and uh, or, or sometimes the same disease can be much more attenuated and present later in life. So there is a, a need to better understanding the the meaning of this result, and this takes to the second point that is constant that was already mentioned. That is, uh, I think, is one of the difficulties, especially in developing countries that to provide an adequate uh, information uh, to the family about the abnormality of some tests and the what, the option the, the family had. So this is, the, I think, are two critical points. The heterogeneity, we need more tools to to and really understand the, the what is um, the meaning of that test and the counseling, we need to also invest more in having this information are uh, being delivered adequately to the, to the family. And this makes a, a lot of difference. Mm -hmm. okay. So in the last couple of minutes that we have, I, I want to ask you all, all to comment on one final question. And that, that is, how do you see the future of newborn screening? Um, and maybe I know a couple of you have talked about genomic sequencing, um, and I, so I'd like to know how this might fit into newborn screening. So, um, Melissa, how about we, we start with you? Well, I think that the, so I, I've been working with biochemical-based newborn screening. In my pilot newborn screen, we're doing biochemical. Plus we're doing biochemical, and then DNA-based for that uh, for the gene. But I, I, think, I think it also... It is. It will all be genome-based newborn screening. I have very little doubt of that going forward. Um, that babies at birth will have that same tiny little bit of blood that we were talking about before. That two to three millimeter punch will be used for uh, sequencing of the exome or the genome, and that will be the future. I think we have a lot that we need to do before we get there. There's a lot of steps. There's a lot more information. There's too much uncertainty right now. But those are hurdles that we can overcome um, with time and with a lot of understanding. But I think that that will then let us figure out if we have all that genomic information, what should we actually share? Should we share it all at birth? Should we share it when they turn 18? Should we share it when they're considering having children? There's a lot of options if you have it done at birth. So there's it's kind of a reimagination of how we're doing it. Great. Um, touch on a lot of exciting things. Great, thank you so much, Melissa. Uh, Roberto, why don't we turn to you next? I fully agree with Melissa. I think that uh, uh, genomic screening is something that uh, we will not be able to avoid, something that will just will happen uh, at some point. The cost is decreasing, the technical situation is, is improving. What, uh, what, uh, what we will do with this information, this is the the challenge, what to, what will be shared, how we still do not understand very very well all the information of the genome, but at some point we will have this and this will be uh, available to the pet. So the, I think this is the future of screening, but uh, of course we should be very careful about uh, how to understand, how to deliver this information, and um, yeah, but at some point it will be it will be in place. I have uh, this is my my impression. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, Jim, can we take you next? Yeah, I, I mean, I've got to say I'm a bit more die-hard biochemical person, but, but, uh, but I think there is a marriage between both. And the reason that I'm a bit more die-hard biochemical is, of course, the biochemistry is more a reflection of actually what's going on in the metabolism of the patient. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to have a genetic change. It's another for that to have some systemic effect 
in the baby. And the biochemical information is telling us that. It's telling us that you've actually got some definably disturbed metabolism. So I think you can marry the two together. Uh, we currently do that in, in any event, very often in screening for a condition like cystic fibrosis. We measure a biochemical marker and then we go on to refine the information from that by doing some uh, genetic testing. And I think that's a marriage made in heaven. It takes us a little bit closer to what's happening in the baby and hopefully gives us a bit more useful information. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you, Jim. And Monica, you started us off, so you get to finish. Uh, well, I, I couldn't agree with, I think, what the others have said in that I think the, the future will be related to genomic sequencing, you know, to, for detection of, of uh, rare disease. Uh, but I also agree with Jim that we can't lose the biochemical, you know, relying, I think I said before, on either modality, the biochemical or genomics alone, you're inevitably going to miss cases. Um, and so I think to the safest way probably involves some combination, but I do think there are still, as others have mentioned, really critically important questions to address, not only related to, you know, can we interpret all the variants we're going to find and des describe what that means for the family, but are we going to have a, a healthcare delivery system that's equitable? How are we going to support these families? Who's going to access this information? How are we going to use it? Um, and so I think it's, a, it's why it's a very exciting time to be in this field. And, and I'm really, really looking forward to seeing how it continues to develop over the next uh, several decades. But I think that we are going to see a lot more with uh, genomic sequencing. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, I think you, you all covered that very well. So thank you so much. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time, so we're going to have to end our discussion there. So many thanks to our fantastic panel for so generously sharing their knowledge and insights. Uh, if you'd like to send us your thoughts on this webinar, you can email webinar at aaas.org. Uh, thank you once again to our panel and to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Goodbye, everyone, and thanks for joining. <laughs>